Fan Club Mug, $13. Testament, $0.50. Cents. WWJD Bracelet, $4. Trendy Tea, $15. The Perfectly Placed Ichthys on Your Car, $7. Having merely the appearance of a Christian? Worthless. So, we are in the final part of our series on Be Rich. We do this every November during the Thanksgiving season. Um, Simply because we know that many of you don't feel like you're rich, but if you ever do become rich, we want you to be good, rich people. So that's uh, one of the reasons we do that. And our logo says, do more, give more. And usually during this time, we focus on the giving part of the campaign. We give through Operation Christmas Child. I think we've taken 250 some boxes to the uh, center already. We've got some more, a few more weeks. We're trying to get that goal of 270 um, boxes filled. I think, was that? Today's the last day. Okay. So we've got, uh, we've got a, a deadline to coming up on that. And then our giving, we've asked you to give a one-time gift of $39.95, um, if you can. And that's going to f- um, following the flock ministry, Charlie and Jordan ministering over in Lebanon. And so that's kind of going from there. We'll let you know more about that on, uh, when we have more information to give. But one of the things that you need to be careful of, because in the church, we're really bad about this. And what we're bad about is this. Sometimes our giving trumps our doing. Sometimes we use giving as a substitute for what we're supposed to be doing. It's really, as the video pointed out, Worthless. Now, our text for the campaign comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Paul is writing to a group of people in the city of Ephesus um, who seems to be in a fairly good financial position. At least they're in a whole lot better in, in a financial position than the people that we saw a couple of weeks ago in Macedonia who was so poor, Paul actually tried to talk them out of giving. If you remember that message, Paul actually tried to talk them out of giving because they were so destitute, but they would have none of that. They just were so grateful for those who brought the gospel message to them. They insisted on, on doing more than, than they even should have been doing. And so now Paul is writing to another group of people. This group of people apparently are in better circumstances than the people in Macedonia. And so he writes this. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. And again, I get it that none of us feels rich. But again, if you ever become rich, we want you to help be a good rich person. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, or to put their hope in wealth. We don't want you counting on your bank account. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything 
for our enjoyment. Now, this is very important. We've mentioned this all along, and we want to remind you of this again. It is not wrong to have nice things. Okay, it's fine to have nice things. Just don't become big-headed about it. Your hope should not be in your abilities. Your hope should not be in your bank account. Now, over many years of ministry, I have seen both individuals and churches that have forgotten this. We fall into this trap so easy, we want to hold on to what we have rather than trusting God to provide for us. And so many people follow the ancient Please get this. This is so important. The ancient Greek philosophy. This is an ancient Greek philosophy. It is not in the Bible. It is a Greek proverb popularized in this country by Benjamin Franklin in Poor Richard's Almanac. God helps those who help themselves. That is not biblical. That is not biblical. So please don't try to make it that. But many people who follow this very concept miss great opportunities for ministry because they are looking for what they can do to finance it rather than looking to God to provide it. And and I get it. I understand. I've been in the argument um, both ways. And and it's always true. You know, you get those people who, you know, they're going to argue we need to do this ourselves as a group. And that always prevails in arguments because it always seems so logical. But the question I want to ask you this morning along these lines is this. Where are you going to place your trust? Where are you going to place your trust? Are you going to Trust in the limited resources of your bank account, the limited resources of what you can do, or are you going to trust in the unlimited resources of God? Don't put your hope in abilities, in your resources. Put your hope rather in God and God's resources. And whether it's on a personal basis or whether it's on a corporal basis, Understand that what God does provide for you, you are free to enjoy. Okay, as I walk through my Christian life, I have seen this tension come up again and again and again. You let a church do something for their ministry, their own ministry, for their own benefit, and someone is always going to complain that should have been given to missions. You should be doing more. You should be doing more in this area. You know, back when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, um, that's, by the way, the picture of Myra and I at our very first date, believe it or not. Um, Somebody snapped it while we were in the uh, ice cream shop there at at Moody. And when we were students at Moody, one of the big events that we had was a, a banquet that the junior class always put on for the senior class. It was a big deal. It was a, a good food, you know, black tie affair. It was a marvelous time. My class came up with a brilliant idea, or at least some people in my class came up with a brilliant idea. They came up with this brilliant idea that what we needed to do is we needed to collect all of that money. And instead of going out and having a lovely banquet to honor the senior class, we needed to give all of that money to missions and take the senior class to the, church, uh, to the school cafeteria and serve them steamed rice, what most people in the world have. 
And they just thought, this is such a great idea. And they pitched it to us. And, you know, I found it interesting because I I'm, yeah, apparently was in a group that was considered not that spiritual um, then. Um, they pitched it to us. And, I, you know, my, my question is, you know, why is it that you're making a decision that, you know, is going to impact another group of people? Why not hold on to that decision and do it for our own senior banquet? Why are you making this wonderful spiritual decision that, that you know, you're not really going to pay for because, you know, the, the senior classes are going to be the ones that miss it. And, of course, I became part of the group that was considered worldly. You are just so worldly, so unspiritual. But understand Paul's admonition here. This is so important. We miss this. There is nothing unspiritual about enjoying what God has given you. There's nothing unspiritual about enjoying what God has given you. Now, I grew up in a church from 8 to 18 that was extremely mission-minded. I mean, extremely. Our church was, you know, it was a nice church. We had a, this beautiful building, but it was in such terrible disrepair. Our church, we probably never had more. At the highest level growing up, we had maybe 75 people in, in attendance on a good Sunday. And, uh, you know, the church ceiling was rotting and falling in from rain repair that needed to be repaired. The walls were stained from the waters that was coming down the wall. The carpet, well, why we ever put carpet in church sanctuaries, I have no idea. But we always insist on doing it, and it was in really bad shape. Um, very, uh, it was threadbare. You could actually see the padding underneath in this carpet. But we never had the money to deal with these issues. Um, the Sunday school rooms were, were just terrible. You know, the, everything was broken. And I remember when we had our budget meeting, it was the highest budget we ever had at that church, Union Gospel Church in, in, in Pittsburgh, uh, Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, actually. The highest budget that we ever had in that church was for $75,000. And that was to cover everything. So it was no wonder we, you know, we couldn't do anything that we needed to do. Now, the bad part about that is this church, like I said, was extremely mission-minded. And our annual budget for mission was $335,000 every year. Now, that sounds real spiritual until you stop to realize this. That church no longer exists because they didn't take care of their own house first. They didn't take care of their own needs. They were so far-sighted that they missed everything that was near. And today, that church no longer exists. So guess what? Nobody gets any money from it. And, and again, it's not spiritual. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not spiritual to care for someone else's needs while you neglect your own. It's not. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. And earlier in this book, Paul writes to young Timothy and he says these words. He says, but everyone who won't care for his own relatives when they need help, especially those living in their own family, has no right to say that he's a Christian. Such a person is worse than the heathen. And don't forget that Jesus condemned the people of his day who are running around saying, I can't help you, I can't help you, I can't help you because I dedicated my money to God. It's his. So what I would give you otherwise, you know, I'd be glad to do it if, I, if I've already promised it. 
Now, I can say this because I've got no horse in this battle, but in a few weeks, Gateway's going to vote on the Gateway Ministry budget. And when you do, I want you to ask yourself some key questions about that Gateway Ministry financial plan that we have. First of all, and that's uh, coming up next week. We've got a couple of very important meetings, not only on budget, uh, but also on leadership and some other things that are coming along that. But I want you to ask yourself these questions. Does this ministry financial plan reflect a God-sized vision, or is it merely a reflection of man's provision? Does it reflect a God-sized vision, what God can do, or is it something that we can possibly accomplish on our own. Second, is the plan inward focused? That is, uh, does it just involve maintaining what we have? Or is it outward focused, fulfilling our great commission that our Lord left us with? Does the plan provide adequately for our vision? You see, our vision, our ministry financial plan reveals what's truly important to us. So does the plan provide, fund what we claim is important to us? Because here's, here's what I know. What's important you support. You, you do it on your own self, isn't it? You buy something you want because what's important to you, your support. And our ministry financial plan reveals what is truly important to us, despite what we might say. We fund what we support, and it really, it's going to reveal whether we are church people who have a hope in our resources, who have a hope in a God with unlimited resources. And I can say this to you because, quite frankly, I, I don't have a conflict of interest in any of that. But I want to encourage you as a family, dream big, dream big for the glory of God. If your vision is within your ability to accomplish it, your trust is in your resources, not in your God. If your vision is in your ability to accomplish it, your trust is in your resources, not in your guard. Now, I've said a whole lot more than I intended to say when I started preparing this message. Uh, so now let's get on to what we really wanted to say uh, about this message. Paul continues with these words. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. Now, you don't even have to be in financial, uh, you know, really good shape to do this. All of us can do this. Do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. The reason the church in the West struggles the way she does is because we have substituted personal giving for personal responsibility. I don't have to do that. I can give for someone else to do it. And we hire ministers to minister for us so that we don't have to minister ourselves. I mean, you know, come on. That's what we pay you for, isn't it, Pastor? We pay joy for it. It's what we pay Paul for. And while the idea of church leadership is certainly a biblical concept with God giving gifted people for the church, the idea that it is their responsibility to do all the ministry is not a biblical 
concept. In fact, Paul, writing to these people earlier, he says this to them. He says, Christ gave those gifts. He's talking to the, the Ephesians again, because that, that's where 1 Timothy goes as well. When Christ gave those gifts, and he's talking about the gifts of apostle, prophet, um, evangelist, and pastor, teacher. When God gave those gifts, here's what he says. Christ gave those gifts to prepare God's holy people to sit on the sidelines and cheer them on, encouraging to do more. Not what he said, is it? No. No, no, no. He said Christ gave those gifts to prepare God's holy people for the work of serving to make the body of Christ stronger. Your job is to minister. Your pastor's job is to teach you how to do that, not to minister for you. Your job is to minister. Your pastor's job. Think about it this way. Most of you guys, with one exception that I got this morning, most of you guys, you're going to go home and you're going to watch football on TV. Football. If you didn't watch it, you probably watched the games yesterday. Now think about this for a minute. You guys who, who love to watch football, or baseball for that matter, whatever, whatever sport you like. What if the team said today, you know what, coach, we're not going to go on the field. We're just going to sit on the bench and we're going to cheer you. We're going to put you guys on the field and you get to play the opposing team. It'd be a pretty boring game, wouldn't it? It would be a blowout. It'd be like a regular week at the Falcons. <laughs> Did I just say that? It's online, too. Can I believe it? Um, but seriously, you know, we would, you know, you wouldn't do that. You'd be, you'd be so upset. But that's what the church does week after week after week. In 2010, a guy that I really enjoy, a guy by the name of Francis Chan. Francis Chan started a mega church on the West Coast. Had 5,000 people in attendance on a regular Sunday. Started as a Bible study, very quickly grew because Francis Chan is a phenomenal communicator. Um, if you haven't heard him, go on YouTube and, and look up one of his messages. Francis Chan walked out on a stage and he saw these 5,000 people and he said, you know, God just kind of hit them because he said, here I am. He said, I'm walking out in front of 5,000 gifted people because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have received the gift of the Spirit and you have at least one gift of the Spirit for service. So Francis Chan said, I walked out and I looked at this crowd of 5,000 people who just come to watch me use my gift. And all of these gifted people are, are there doing nothing. And he resigned. He walked away from it all. Went overseas and did some ministry over there for a while. And now he's back in the United States starting new churches based on the fact that people do the ministry. He does the training for the people to do the ministry. But he said, you know, I looked out and he said, I just couldn't help it. He said, there's no sin, there's nothing wrong. He said, but I just, I couldn't help thinking there's something wrong with this picture. And so we resigned and started this new journey, again, designed at building churches that, that need building. Now, when I was writing this message, I was actually sitting at my dining room table 
and I was looking out on my deck. Now, you can tell that my deck needs some work. It has needed work for a number of years now. It needs to be cleaned. Uh, the railing in certain areas needs to be sanded. Um, some warp boards need to either be turned over or replaced totally, probably replaced totally by now. Um, some nails need to be reset, you know, that have kind of popped up from where those have. And a year ago, I talked to Carl Anusik about the product that I should be using to, to do this, and he told me what product that I needed, and he told me how to, how to use it. And it's a really simple process, you know, that, that anybody can do. But you know what? I still haven't done anything about my deck. Now, here's my dilemma. I know what needs to be done. I know how to do it. I have the skills to do it. My question is, Am I going to actually get out there and do it, or am I going to take the easy way out and hire somebody to do my work for me? Now, both options are viable on this desk, a deck. But, you know, and it doesn't really matter which route I take. Hire someone to do it, do it myself. But in the church, there's a similar attitude that has crept in. We think that we hire everything out. Oh yeah, that's why we hire the youth pastor, that's why we hire the pastor, that's why we hire this person, that's why we hire that person. And so they'll do the ministry. And I think sometimes we pay professionals so that we get out of doing the ministry that we have the responsibility of doing. I had one man who used to tell me all the time, Pastor, you wait a minute now. You get paid for being good. I have to be good for nothing. And, and you know, he was kind of serious about that. Now, he, you know, he gave it tongue in cheek, but he was kind of serious about it. And by the way, you know what he was really good for? He, he wasn't really good for nothing. He was really good for every time you tried to do something positive, he was going to tear it down and tell you why you couldn't do it. Why you should be doing something different. Now, good works... That's a, a term that we in the evangelical community disparage a lot. And the reason we disparage that is because we take two verses out of its context. Two verses that, that we do have in Scripture. It's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where the Apostle Paul wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Now, you know what I find as a pastor, for, and this is true, you know this, you've, you've probably used this excuse, because, you know, I use this excuse sometimes. I'm a pastor. We don't understand grace. We think grace means I don't have to do what I don't want to do. I, I, I just don't want to do that. So, pastor, I'm under grace. Or we use grace as an excuse to do what we know we should not be doing. Pastor, I know I shouldn't be doing it, but let's not be legalistic. I'm under grace. And people who use that argument, they're not, they don't even understand grace. Because if you remember when we talked about grace a few weeks ago, one of the things that we said is grace produces gratitude, and gratitude produces works. It just does. But we got people, I'm under grace, you can't judge me. Tell me what to do. 
Such a person doesn't understand grace at all. Now, Paul continues, not by works. See, Pastor, I told you it wasn't by works. Shouldn't be talking about works. Not by works so that no one can boast. And it seems to me that so many people have taken these two verses out of context and say, see, that's why we don't have to work. Now, Paul explains in our main text what to do. He says, command them to do good to be rich in good works, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, please understand this. We do not do good deeds to be saved. We do good deeds so others will be saved. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and say, what a wonderful person you are. No, if they stop there, you've missed it. They may glorify your Father in heaven. We believers are commanded to do good deeds so that others see God. In the second and third centuries, in the early days of the church, when there was still no New Testament, nobody could say the Bible says, no New Testament yet, there were two plagues that occurred in the Roman Empire. The first one was the uh, Antonine Plague of 165 to 180 AD. It's also called the Plague of uh, Galen. It was a pandemic that swept through the Roman Empire, believed to have been introduced into the empire by soldiers who were refer- uh, returning from Syria after having carried out a campaign. And in this plague from 165 to 180, that's a long time for a plague to take place, In this plague, five million people, think about this in the ancient world, not in today's world, five million people died during that plague. In the following century, from 251 to 266 AD, there was the plague of Cyprian that came into the Roman Empire from Africa and went throughout the whole Roman Empire. It was transmitted from person to person with physical contact. If, if people think it might have been Ebola, we don't know, but if you had physical contact with someone who was sick, chances are you were going to catch it. Or if you touched their clothes and they were sick, you were going to catch it and you were going to die. One half of all the people who got this disease died. As a matter of fact, at its height, 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome alone. 5,000 people a day. Now, during both of these pandemics, government officials, pagan priests, and the wealthy all fled the cities to find safety in the countryside so that they could escape those who were infected. While everyone who knew better was fleeing from the sick, Christians were rushing to their aid. They were rushing in with every man behind, and they became a great force of caretakers in this plague. Now, one of the uh, Romans... um, 
emperors who hated Christians was angry with the priest because he's saying, you know, we're trying to convert people to our belief and you guys won't even stay around. Look at these Christians who we hate and they're coming in and doing this work. And on Easter Sunday, 2060 uh, AD, Bishop Diocenes of Corinth praised the effort of these Christians, many of whom died while caring for the others. Here's what he wrote. Most of our brothers Christians showed up unbounded by love and loyalty, never sparing of themselves, thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. They got sick and died. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. You see, these early Christians' dedication to caring for their neighbors as for themselves during the times of plague and sickness, whether the believers were the sick were believers or not, it didn't matter to these Christians. Showcase the integrity of their message and their unique love for other people. And these Christ-like actions by these early believers had a great social impact and attracted many to the faith. That kind of Christian love produced an explosion in the Gentile congregations of the day. The fact that these early Christians were not afraid of death and selflessly ministered to those who were affected without consideration to their own welfare led many to come to faith in Christ. You see, these early believers were eager to do good and to be rich in good deeds. And the result of that, many people came to faith in the Savior. Now, we don't work because we're trying to earn our way in heaven. You can't. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. We don't work because we're trying to earn our way into heaven. And please understand this. We don't work because it gives us better position with God. That's not why we work. His grace is lavishly put on us one way or the other. He doesn't love you anymore when you're doing what you ought to do, then he loves you any less when you're not doing what you ought to do. He loves you the same. His love is undeserved. Undeserved. So we don't do works to gain standing with God, nor do we do works to stay in right standing with God, because in Christ Jesus, when you give your heart to Christ Jesus, you are as close to God as you will ever get. One hymn writer, we don't do hymns anymore unfortunately sometimes, uh, it's, it's very unfortunate, but one hymn writer put it this way. He said, nearer, nearer, nearer to God I cannot be, for in his Son I'm near as he. Dearer, dear, dear to God I cannot be, for in his Son I'm dear as he. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's where you stand. You can't get any closer. 
You can't become any dearer. Christ is already bought and paid fully for your standing before the Father. So Paul isn't commanding us to do good so that we can earn our salvation or somehow deserve a better place in heaven or deserve you know, to what we already possessed because we can't. He commands us to do good because he knows that there's a watching world and there's something about those of us who are living for Christ that gets the attention of those who are watching. Those of us who call ourselves Christians, he says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's why, that's why he commands us, do more, do more, be rich in good deeds. So as I close, what we're going to do, we're going to close a little bit different than we normally close. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. You know, normally we, we ask you, we give you an opportunity to do that. We're not going to ask you to do that. I am going to ask you to watch a video that we're going to show prayerfully, prayerfully. Listen to the words, consider what's being said. And as you're watching this video, if you're one of the people that have been sitting and soaking all the time, that's all you do. You just come, you sit in the service, and then you go home and you never do anything. Did my, did my thing. I went to church. I want you to ask, what do I need to do? And I want you to consider stepping up and stepping out, doing something. And if you're those who have been serving, because some of you, I know you've been serving and you've been serving a long time and you're tired. You're beat up. I want to give you two verses as we close. I want to give you two verses that really mean a lot to me. One is from Galatians 6 where Paul says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at proper time we will reap the harvest if we do not give up. Anybody know the story of the Chinese bamboo? Chinese bamboo is an interesting plant. You take the Chinese bamboo plant, little seed, and you put it in the soil. And you water and you feed that soil for the first year. And guess what happens? Nothing that you can see. And you do it again the second year, and the third year, and the fourth year, and the fifth year. In a matter of about two weeks, that Chinese bamboo grows six feet. So here's the question. Did the Chinese bamboo grow six feet in two weeks, or did it grow six feet in five years? Because, see, if you had stopped any time during that time, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have come about. Don't become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. So you, those of you who are serving, thank you, thank you, thank you for your service. And then here's my favorite verse of all time when it comes to serving. He says, therefore, my dear brother, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It'll never produce, it'll never come back fruitless. Never. Never. Don't ever think it will. This is his promise to us. So, let me pray for us 
And then I want you to watch this video and hopefully decide to do something. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you did something. We didn't even want you in our world, and you came. We still many times don't want you in our world. And even as Christians, Lord, so many times we as Christians who claim to love you are so grateful for the gift that you have given us of salvation, we, we treat it as a free ticket to heaven. Got my way in, don't care about anybody else. And, oh Lord, you can be my savior, but don't, don't be my Lord. I, I don't want, I, I want to make my own decisions. And yet you came and you gave, and you continue to come and give yourself to us. Now, Lord, for those of us who know you as personal Savior, I pray that we will begin to live with you as Lord, the boss of our lives. And we will look for those opportunities to be rich, in good deeds. If we don't have the money, we can still be rich in good deeds. So the people will see you and want to know why you make a difference. So Lord, give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard. Give us the courage to stand up and do something. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, saw a world full of trouble now. I thought, how do we ever get so far down? And how's it ever gonna turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven. I thought, God, why don't you do something? Well, I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty and children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me, so I shook my fist at heaven. I said, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. Yeah. I created you. If not us, then